This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Voices of Vapors. This is where we talk all things tobacco harm reduction, a concept that increasingly is getting lost right now um, amid all these vaping hospitalizations and bans coming down at a state level. Um, As you you may know, there's approximately at least 3 million vapors that have used electronic cigarettes to quit smoking combustible cigarettes. A recent study done earlier this year found these e-cigarettes to be twice as effective as traditional nicotine replacement therapy. And they are safer, surprisingly. Um, You know, first in 2015 with Public Health England finding them to be 95% safer. They also reiterated this claim in 2018 after re-examining the evidence. The Royal College Physicians, the same public health organization the United States relied on for their 1964 Surgeon General's report on smoking um, found that e-cigarette use is unlikely to exceed 5% of the harm from combustible cigarettes. Recently, the American Cancer Society has actually found the use of electronic cigarettes and vaping devices to be significantly less harmful as they do not combust nor contain tobacco. 2019, wow, at the state level, onslaught of legislation. I think there was over 300 bills that aim to regulate, tax, or even prohibit the use of electronic cigarettes and vaping devices. And these came at local, state, and the federal levels. Um, Now you've got the recent vaping hospitalizations, which are overwhelmingly being linked to THC-containing vaping devices. Um, But it it hasn't stopped. You've got bans now in Massachusetts, Michigan, New York, and now Rhode Island um, announced on uh, Wednesday, uh, September 25th. New York is is not even a flavor ban. It's a full-blown ban on electronic cigarettes. There are bills in Illinois and Ohio to ban flavors as well. And California, the other day, uh, L.A. County just banned flavors Yeah, yesterday. So today, I've got a guy who's like ground zero. Stefan Didak is the former founder and president of Not Blowing Smoke, and he currently, op- he currently operates a public affairs firm called Igniter. Not Blowing Smoke was an advocacy organization that he kind of started accidentally when he began educating council members and lawmakers on, you know, what e-cigarettes were as they were looking at regulating these. Um, And he kind of just inadvertently got really involved with all the efforts, um, including taxes, um, regulations, tobacco 21, and flavor bans. Um, So today we're going to talk about California, um, how they kind of set the stage for everything that you're seeing going on nationally. And I hope you enjoy it. Uh, Stefan, thanks for uh, joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me again. <laughs> so, um, okay, so you already you've been on numerous times. If nobody knows who you are, they can listen to earlier podcasts. So I'm not going to ask you know the usual first uh, question. Let's Cal- exactly. Let's talk about California. Can you give our listeners kind of just like a brief history of what has gone down there? Um, like you know, when did this all start, and how has this kind of spun out of control? Right. So the original first flavor ban started in around 2014, 2015, and it was sort of um, more like tobacco control, putting feelers out and trying to see how far they could push it while at the same time developing their their, their policies. So the first one that that actually happened was in Sonoma City in uh, 2015. And 
after that, it was sort of very quiet, like like nothing was happening. We were expecting that this is this is going to like spread, and, and other municipalities are going to take it up. And it was just eerily silent on on flavor bin policies until Contra Costa County, um, late December 2016, started moving on uh, a much more um, <clears throat> robustly developed version of a flavor bin policy. And from there on, it basically went from Contra Costa County to Oakland, from Oakland to San Francisco. And uh, ever since um, the past three years, there's about, uh, I think, 40 municipalities in California that have enacted flavor bans. Several of them are substantially weakened with exemptions for adult-only access establishments. Uh, Some are grandfathered in, like, like in Hayward. Um, out of the 40, there were many, many more policy battles, uh, at least 25 to 30 more. But those policies never saw the light of day in those municipalities because we got to them at a, a fairly early time, had good arguments, and luckily also councils and supervisors who actually saw the benefit of these products and didn't want to like cause the economic harm. So it, it's been pretty much uh, the primary policy issue I've been engaging in for the past three years here. Flavor bans. Okay, so, okay, recent ones. Um, L.A. County, that's a pretty big one. Um, can you talk more about, um, well, actually, let's back that up, guys. You can edit that out. The flavor bans, too, they don't <coughs> just apply to electronic cigarettes and vaping devices. They do apply to hookah products, and some of them actually apply to combustible cigarettes, so menthol. Um, what is the turnout like when you're seeing, you know, because everybody's going to be, a lot of this legislation, all of these entities are impacted. Right. So most most of the flavor bands actually do include um, other flavored tobacco products, like, like flavored pipe tobacco, uh, flavored hookah tobacco, and it, it, it's sort of odd because you don't see kids walking into schools with with a pipe or a hookah. So they're, they're sort of just like like vaping as a category is caught in under the tobacco moniker. They're they're basically caught in under the the vaping flavor moniker. It's it's a pretty big mess. What what we're seeing in in terms of uh, turnout and especially the more important turnout, the the one on one meetings that are being had prior to any public hearings. Uh, there's always a, a pretty good, strong showing from uh, immigrant grocers, uh, sea stores, gas stations, uh, along with their representation like uh, APCA, CAFCA, NATO. Okay. They do a pretty good job in defending their business and defending the economic argument. Uh, most, most of these small businesses have their entire retirement investment depending on their business. However... Papers are generally not as involved, certainly not as involved as they should be or as I would like to see them involved, uh, which always gives a very odd sort of imbalance because the folks on the traditional tobacco side get more of a voice. Well, they also get more of a voice because there's more of them out there than there are paper retailers, right? Mm-hmm. 
generally in, in California, we, we work well together on a lot of policy issues. Uh, lately, there's been quite a bit of tension, and that's mostly because um, a lot of the vapor industry is bringing up arguments about uh, banning specific products or banning them specifically from uh, their segment of the market, which, of course, does not go over well, creates tension, and... Yeah. If you're working in a in a wider coalition, that that just generally doesn't do much good, unfortunately. Exactly. Okay, so the recent one, uh, okay, is um, L.A. County, and that's pretty significant. It's like the lar- is it that or San Diego County is like the largest county in um, California. Um, they also are one of the county, or they I know is it, yeah, it's the county that actually is earmarked um, MSA payments each year. Um, uh, so what was that like? What I mean, what were the arguments that you heard like in favor of this? Is it all about the kids? Um, did the hospitalizations have anything to do with this? Uh, right. So uh, let, let me let me go back in time a little because uh, a lot of people were confused about L.A. County. And um, let's also make sure that, that everybody understands that this, this only applies to the unincorporated areas, which is mostly mountains and desert. Uh, however, once a county adopts it, it, it's pretty much a shoe in that the municipalities will adopt something similar. And uh, just as with LA County, LA City has also been considering doing a flavor ban. And this is this has been in place since uh, late summer 2018. It managed to get stalled for reasons I can't really get into. Uh, then LA County started in March this year. And that luckily also got stalled because, you know, there, there was state-level action going on. Why waste city resources or county resources on pushing for a policy that might need to be repealed or amended or, or creating compatibilities? Uh, unfortunately, what we've seen in the media storm from uh, the past several weeks is that um, all these things that were on hold and basically in, in, in a stasis pattern waiting for state action to happen – uh, they have all started accelerating and, and picking up their, their ordinances and running with it. And this, of course, is part of the coordinated actions that are going on on behalf of tobacco control, public health, and especially uh, a lot of the confusion that, that CDC is putting out there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, all of a sudden, L.A. County came back up with their ordinance and uh, we had an amazing turnout. There, there were hundreds and hundreds of people speaking and opposing this. Uh, unfortunately, um, at the state level, at various local levels, what we have been able to measure in the past several weeks as a direct result of all the negative media and the confusion is that a lot of hard no votes who would never vote for a, a flavor bent policy or anything that that causes this level of economic harm, uh, they have all sort of um, flipped their position. Um, It's it's hard to tell exactly how how wide and how severe this is, but uh, we're we're talking double-digit percentages easily. So the effect of of all the media is uh, certainly being felt and, and not in a good way. Yeah. Well, and it is very, I mean, it is very confusing. Um, I know any of it, it's just the this idea that, you know, vaping and THC, and they, I mean, okay, I know they're trying to, it's really hard. How do, what's an easy way to distinguish kids who are vaping THC and kids who are vaping nicotine? 
Well, we're still sort of working it out other than, well, this is a completely different substance. And I've been doing a lot of interviews lately, and every now and then the question comes up, well, your products are compatible with consuming that. So why why, why isn't industry altering the products to not be compatible? And uh, my general response to that? that is, well, that's sort of like saying, hey, the, the medical device industry should change how needles and syringes work because heroin addicts are using it to shoot up an illegal substance. Uh, it, it, it just <laughs> doesn't work that way. It's it's not the devices, it's the substance that people use. And in this particular case, where the substance is coming from, if, it, if it's an illegal drug, if it's sold by drug dealers on the street versus legit retailers who are FDA regulated, uh, Legit, legit businesses having a product that never had any of these problems whatsoever yeah. in the past ten years. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. That's the big. That's the real kicker. And and even you weren't seeing even a big problem until you know the youth vaping epidemic got started last year. And I was just be like, what came first, the jewel or the vape store? Um, you know, vape. You really saw what was it? 2012 is when you saw the explosion around the country of vape shops and everything. Um, mm-hmm. it's, yep. I mean, so it's and I mean, I and a lot. Of, I I don't think a lot of lawmakers kind of get this idea of this small business and you know that these people whose livelihoods do depend on this. Um, and that they really did it and. None of these business owners are making, you know, the small, I'm thinking of like the vape shops are making, you know, terrible amounts, you know, or, you know, crazy amounts of money, um, you know, but they are really excited about their business because it helped them quit smoking and they want to share that with other people. Right. And, and in terms of um, vapor retail and vapor manufacturers making hand over fist money, there, there was a short period in time when uh, that was absolutely the case. And, and, um, uh, the product category was new. Uh, smokers were, were switching at unprecedented levels. Uh, these days, especially due to flavor bans and other policies, and of course the whole dark cloud of the, the federal regulatory regime, uh, I, these stores are, are not doing well in general. And especially lately in the past, I would say, six, seven weeks, uh, thanks to the media storm, I'm hearing uh, gross receipts sale uh, gross receipt counts being down by anywhere between 30 and 50%. Yeah. Um, every, everybody who runs in, in, in a retail establishment knows that if, if you're losing that much of percentage, it gets really difficult to, to keep the bills paid, let alone like making any profit and feeding your family. Yeah, exactly. And you're not laying off, you know, all your employees. And, um, okay. So back to the mm-hmm. hearing, um, and okay, like one of the things I got asked to earlier from a lawmaker that, you know, like, you know, what are some ways to address the youth vaping, um, epidemic or so-called youth vaping epidemic? Um, and I, I know there's preliminary data, um, you know, and I know their data is all wonky and everything if you're a data person and that, you know, does show in the monitoring the future survey for 2019 that youth vaping still did increase. Um, and how can the industry figure out, like, what, do you have any policy solutions that the industry could implement to, you know, get these numbers down um, and, and, you know, decrease the amount of youth that are using electronic cigarettes? Well, there, there are certainly a lot of things industry could do, and there's a lot of uh, very good proposals on the table that industry is generally in support for. Uh, unfortunately, it, it, it also needs a little help from government in order to really, truly make this happen, because uh, there is an enforcement component involved. Uh, one of the things is, first, 
we should all sit down and figure out where kids are getting these products, right? Exactly. Um, we know it's generally not from brick-and-mortar retail stores, whether they're vape stores or C-stores or gas stations. Uh, compliance rates nationally are extremely high. So we're looking at things like straw purchases, people who are of age buying large amounts of products and selling them on. We're looking at illicit online retail because legit online retailers generally have good age verification. So uh, unlikely debt is a source. Where are they getting them from? Well, eBay, Amazon, uh, lots of these fly-by-night pop-up uh, e-commerce stores. So how do we deal with that? Well, one thing we could do is make sure that all retailers who are selling tobacco products, vapor products, um, age-restricted products, have a point of sale system that interfaces with an ID scanner that does a third-party remote age verification. So you're not just checking an ID, you're actually verifying it. Yep. Um, these, these systems, are they exist. There, there, there's a few of them out there. Uh, the cost is manageable, um, especially if trade associations were to make these widely available to their members, cost would come down tremendously. So this takes out the, the, the sales to miners from brick-and-mortar retail. It also takes away any potential errors or mistakes or somebody not paying attention. Yep. which is great because that protects the retailers from sting operations and, and other potential errors. And if at any point in time something really odd were to happen or uh, a situation that, that the system completely screws up on, you have a complete log and a record showing that you did exactly what the law required you to do. So you have an indemnification there. So that's that's one of the things. Uh, same system you could you could set up to not allow certain volumes of products to be sold to one person, because let's face it, if somebody comes into your store and says, "So you got like uh, dual mint cart uh, mint pods?" Yeah, okay, um, get me a hundred of those. <laughs> you know that something's up, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if the system if the system says, "Wow, you just scanned a hundred pods," sorry, uh, there's a limit of two or four or whatever, yeah. uh, well, there's another layer of protection. Um, extra enforcement, um, higher penalties, because if there are still places that sell to minors, uh, they're, they're getting off with like just a tiny little fine. The fines do add up, and after three strikes, you lose your license, and the three strikes are sort of held over a period of three to five years, but the risk is generally still sort of low. Well, up that risk. I mean, most responsible retailers are totally fine with, with fairly strict and, and heavy-handed penalties for, for underage sales. Um, then we have to look at, at online sales. Then we have to look at illicit sales. Well, how is industry gonna gonna really help other than maybe have track and trace programs in place for their products? Uh, serial numbering, um, things like that, in order to to track where these products might end up. But at the same time, you cannot expect industry to police a portion of of a channel that is not even part of their market and, and not part of their industry. So this is where government needs to come in. This is where government needs to enforce that those other channels are doing a better job at yeah. not making these products accessible or not allowing third parties to make these products accessible to others. Now, what about, I mean, so 
a little bit of a side story, but it kind of I was watching Life PD, the marathon, um, and I and it was Florida, and this guy had this gun that we, it looked like it was made out of PVC pipe, and the, one officer was like, "Oh yeah, you put that together, put that together, that's a firearm." Um, what about these kids that really just want to vape? That I mean, even if you you ban them, cool. Um, you put all these restrictions on them, but they can still go online and see tutorials on how to make a you know vaping device. <laughs> Uh, well, this, this is how the entire industry got started in the first place, right? People at home tinkering with, with some electronics, tinkering with some, some metal pipes, basically. I mean, it, it, this, is, this is where it all started, and this is apparently where it's all being driven back to. It, it would not be very hard for anybody to basically manufacture at home their own vaping device. Uh, it is even simpler to, at home, just manufacture your own e-liquid. I mean, the ingredients are, are pretty readily available. Uh, it doesn't take a degree in rocket science. And if it's for personal consumption, well, I know, I know people who, who will go that route and be totally fine with that. Yeah. Uh, the unfortunate part is that um, this is also how black markets start because once you realize how simple it is, you will also realize how simple it is to like fill up a bottle and charge ten bucks and sell it to a friend. Yep. And before you know it, again, this is this is how things originally started. This is where it's going back to. Except now, of course, it would be technically illegal. Um, the problems I see is that uh, now we're going to have people, more people, who are having large amounts of of nicotine at, at extremely high grades, 100 milligram, 250 milligram per milliliter, um, it's going to be sitting in their homes. There's possibly small kids running around, maybe pets. Um, number of, of toxic, toxic exposures are going to go up. Uh, number of potential deaths is, is going to increase as a risk. And on top of that, if you look at the black market and you, you look at the, the general pulse in vaping about, about manufacturers saying, well, I'm just going to sell out of the trunk of my car. <laughs> once, once drug dealers, the same drug dealers who are responsible for these black market THC cartridges containing vitamin E acetate, what do you think is going to happen if they realize how easy it is to make e-liquid and how profitable that black market will be? These are the people who will be causing even more problems and possibly bring actual guns, the, the, the type that actually shoot bullets, to a turf war. So I, I don't think a black market should be applauded by anybody because I, I don't see this black market materializing in the way people expect it to. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and that's the thing too. When you look at these bands, um, you know what I know, you know, with a lot of these, you know, like these, you know, uh, liquid companies that are regulated and registered with the FDA, is that they started out doing it at their house, you know, and their friends liked it. Oh, hey, I can have a business on it. Um, so I don't really see them turning around and being like, well, I'm not going to vape anymore, um, you know, and. Um, I mean, these people know what they're doing, but I could see the, you know, other kids being like, well, I'm going to make my own because these people made their own too. And yeah, the, the, the extremely high nicotine content, just messing up, not putting the right um, substance in it, um, which, which I think is what you're seeing out of the THC. They don't know how to thin it out because um, they're not science, you know, they're potheads. Um, so that's where you're seeing these negative effects for people <laughs> vaping it. The drug dealers. Right. And the, the other side. problem is that, that when it comes to flavoring, uh, way, way, way back, like 2009, I believe it was Spain, there were a few 
instances of lipid pneumonia that traced back to DIY experimenting with flavors. And those flavors happen to be oil-based, and uh, it's a long time ago. Um, it was the heyday of vaping, but ever since, industry has sort of evolved. Uh, flavor manufacturers have evolved. Um, things that, that should not be in e-liquid generally aren't in e-liquid. Yeah. And certainly, oil-based e-liquids do not exist anywhere. However, if somebody has no idea what they're doing and they heard it is this simple without actually really putting in all the, the effort and groundwork, uh, they might be buying flavors off the shelf at, at their, their grocery store. And I do not think that you should be using those products to manufacture your own e-liquid, whether it's, whether it's for black market sales or personal use, <laughs> you should know what you're doing. And unfortunately, with 30 million vapors out there in the country, there's going to be a very, very large contingent who will be seeking out these types of solutions. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure any regulator or any government agency would, would like that. Yeah, Oh, exactly. Um, okay, another question, and this is because, you know, what you're seeing too, which I think, you know, um, a lot of policymakers are under the impression that this is big tobaccos, um, you know, new way to hook kids. Um, and I try to tell them a lot that I'm like, no, big tobacco did not get involved with it. Um, if anything, um, big tobacco thought vaping was a gimmick. And this isn't a gimmick for them to hook kids. This is a reason that they, this is a change they had to do because, you know, smokers kind of demanded it. Can you kind of explain more into that? Right. And indeed, they didn't get involved until they really saw how much impact it was having on the bottom line of their traditional combustible tobacco sales. And and I totally get it. I mean, there was a time when, when e-cigarettes were, were available and I had no interest because I too thought it was a fad and, oh, this is never going to take off. <laughs> and yeah, it might work, but then maybe if it's over, you can't get these products anymore. So I, I, I understand the skepticism. Unfortunately, um, unfortunately for them, uh, it took off. They had to do something. And I think they saw the light that while tobacco sales will continue to decline year after year, how are they going to like keep their stock price up? What are they going to do? So getting into the vapor space was actually not a bad idea from, from a business perspective because you get to sell a product with a much higher profit margin yeah. because cigarettes are mostly tax. They're not getting that tax. So higher profit margin, you sell products that you need fewer customers to sustain your revenue levels. And at the same time, here's the real kicker. You're not killing your customers. Yep. Wow. So yeah, they, they got involved. They got heavily involved. They, they, they've helped a lot in, in legislative arenas. They've done a few things that certain parts of the market aren't happy with, but that's sort of part of business and sort of part of how policy works, right? And I do not see big tobacco companies using vapor as a means of luring in kids and, and quote-unquote, hooking the next generation on nicotine in the hopes of selling them cigarettes. Because that is the very gateway theory that tobacco control keeps pushing, yeah. which doesn't exist. Which, unfortunately, the way things are going right now is a gateway they're creating. Because what happens with these kids who no longer will have any access to vapor products. 
will they go and pick up smoking? If that happens and the, the youth smoking rate goes up, they've created the gateway. And of course, they'll be out there full force in media saying, well, we've always said so. Oh, yeah, exactly. But it's their it's their fault that, you know, they did a whole ban on it. So um, kids who had mm-hmm. been vaping are moving over there and the kids who probably would never have picked up a cigarette if vaping was around. Um, what also is always amazing is this quote unquote youth vaping epidemic. But it, the, the rates of kids youth vaping um, are still significantly lower than the rates of kids that were smoking in like 1997. Right. And, and that's the part they all willfully ignore yes there is an uptick in in youth use yes there is even an uptick in in past 30 day use but look at the smoking rate that's declining it doesn't justify that that kids are using vapor products or any nicotine product but at the same time you cannot be out there and say the sky is falling this is the worst thing that has ever happened when at the same time at the other side, you're seeing these massive historic declines that prior to vaping were not declining this fast. Yeah, exactly. And vaping also, I, mean, I, the, the, I think with the, the youth attitude surveys also show that, like, you know, youth are, are more, like they, their, their opinion of cigarettes is, you know, at a, you know out of disgust of cigarettes. Yes, and, and here's the other funny thing. If... It, if, if you're vaping, uh, the idea of, of, of going back to a cigarette, it sort of depends, right? Because I'm, I'm pretty confident that I will, I will never smoke again. Uh, on the other hand, if you're looking at someone who only just recently switched and they're still in that dual use period, which sometimes can last for quite a few months, those folks are much much more susceptible to relapse and going back to smoking. For kids who are not prone to either smoke or vape. I don't think it's much of an issue, but the ones who do vape, I cannot see them going to cigarettes unless they are truly addicted to nicotine. And if you look at the past 30 day uh, use numbers, I do not see that as the potential epidemic concern that they're presenting out there. Yeah, this is well, this addiction to nicotine, I'm so sick of hearing it. Um, uh, you know, when you look at any quit smoking thing, they, they tell you, what, three days? It's out of your system. You know, your cravings are a little bit better, you know. I think the um, it's the act of smoking, I think, that is so hard for people because, you know, you smoke after having um, – after uh, smoke after eating dinner. You smoke in the car, you know. I You know, I know, like, if I almost hit somebody or something, like, a cigarettes help calm me down when I'm driving and everything. <laughs> um, and vaping – mimics the act of smoking. And I think that's why it's just so much more of an effective um, tobacco harm reduction product than any of the other things available out there just because of that alone. Um, that's, that's a right. And, and the other thing I've observed is that uh, with the exception of a few uh, very hyped up uh, questionable horror stories that were written in the media about uh, youth being addicted and how hard it was and the troubles and Just the as families being torn apart. Uh, if, <laughs> if you look at the bulk of like, I caught my kid vaping. Oh, I took action. Uh, apparently these kids are quitting vaping and as such quitting their quote unquote nicotine ind- addiction very easily and very simply without too much effort, which is sort of odd because uh, as smokers, most of us had the hardest time trying to quit before vaping. Yep, 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and they also they haven't been they haven't been doing it long enough. And they think that's great too. When the parents come in, a, a government shouldn't be if your kid is doing something illegal uh, to begin with. Government shouldn't be coming in and restricting access to legal adults because you can't be a parent. Right. That's just my opinion. And <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately, um, government does not appear to be very uh, willing to have policies in place that would ensure that uh, kids at least have to deal with some of the consequences of their actions. Uh, we saw that here in, in California with uh, one of the assembly bills, uh, Assembly Bill um, 1639. Uh, there was an entire section in there on uh, possession use and, and, and purchasing by minors, and it set out a bunch of penalties, which uh, actually included uh, taking their driver's license away nice. I like uh, it. for a short period of time. Yeah, well, um, it, it was a very substantial portion of the bill. Uh, tobacco control and public health organizations wasted a lot of their lobbying hours on, on making sure that was removed. Yeah, they do that. Um, I know. I, yeah, that's what they do. And I do understand their concern in terms of how this could lead to police brutality towards minors of specific racial demographics. Uh, on the other hand, that is also a poor excuse for not having anything in place that basically puts consequences to actions. And it is unfair for, for retailers to constantly be in the hot seat when a kid can walk in and out and in and out as long, as, as many times as they, they, they please until they find that clerk who makes a mistake and says, yeah, okay, here, there you go. Yeah. Uh, there, there, there should be some consequences for that because a kid walking into a retail store and knowing that you should not be able to buy these things, you're, you're being a very small little willing participant in breaking the law. Oh, yeah. And in threatening, you know, adult access. Um, I know I saw it earlier this year. I think it was in May. This um, school district unanimously voted to any kid that was caught with a vaping device in the school district in any of these schools. They were going to treat it like it was a THC device, um, a felony level marijuana possession, and it was up the burden of proof is onto the ch the the student to determine whether it's actually nicotine. And I think that's fantastic, especially if you think you can get away with bringing drugs. I mean, especially with these new hospitalizations coming out that are overwhelmingly being linked to. Um, THC products, I think it's great. I mean, you're an idiot kid. You should have to fa pay, some, you know, face some of the, um, you know, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, your actions, the consequences of your actions. You you should be able to. You right. Know, I, I, I'm not a big fan of actually going as far as like felony charges, but um, <laughs> there, there, there's other there's just other ways of of dealing with that while at the same time basically saying, well you prove whether that is nicotine or THC or what are you bringing into our school? Because at this point, it, it's getting really difficult for schools to, to tell what, what kids may or may not bring in because um, look at look at the most popular product out there, uh, which apparently is not as popular anymore amongst youth, but let's take a jewel. Yep. <laughs> Everybody knows what a jewel is. Everybody knows what a jewel looks like. The media has done an amazing job spending billions of dollars in airtime making sure everybody knows what it is yep and yet there's black market thc pods for it yeah i didn't know that so like they even come ago. with an actual jewel logo on it 
So here you are, you're a teacher, even if you grab it with the packaging, if they have that on there, what are you going to think? What are you going to report? How are you going to see this? So, yeah, you have to make sure that you know what kids are bringing into the school, what they're carrying. And I don't think NYPS has done a really great job for the 2019 stuff, because even though they asked about branding, how is a kid going to know whether they've got a black market counterfeit that they bought off a friend? Did did your friend get it from a store? Did your friend get it from another friend? Is it an actual authentic product? Is it not? What are you actually vaping? Okay, so I'm going to have to start wrapping this up so that my, my AV team doesn't kill me sure. for edits right now. Um, so any um, – all right, I mean, we've already seen, you know, it's pretty much – I mean, bloody Tuesday yesterday. That was a fun day to watch with everything going around in the States. Um, where, where do you expect all this to kind of, kind of like, you know, come to a head at? Uh, well, since I've been doing a lot of international interviews the past few days, I have a feeling that uh, – in the next several days, the same news stories are going to be carried over in, in specifically Europe, mm-hmm. which means that the echo of those stories will be bouncing back here. So I have a feeling that we're, we're in for a, a second wave of, of bad media. Uh, I'm also sure that leads to a second wave of knee-jerk reactions, rash decisions, uh, executive orders, uh, policies that have been stalled suddenly being reactivated. Um, I, I don't. I don't think the current storm is over yet. However, uh, if I have any really, really solid advice to 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 give anybody, if if you're in an area where um, you aren't aware that flavor bent policies were already discussed, uh, if they are on hold, you should absolutely meet with your legislators. And this is this is the biggest problem in LA. I've been warning people since March about LA County. Uh, I know of three vapor business stakeholders who actually engaged with their supervisors. Uh, The rest was not engaged at all. They show up at a hearing expecting to change minds and um, those of us who work in policy know that by the time you get to that stage, it's sort of already made up. So you lost your shot. So the only solid advice for, for everybody out there is when somebody says you still have maybe a few weeks or possibly a few months before a policy like this comes to a public hearing for input, do what you need to do. Don't sit back and hope that someone else is going to address it for you. Yeah. The 200 people who were speaking yesterday, great. If we had those 200 people speaking with their supervisors in the months prior, I'm not sure the outcome would have been the same. And even if they would have gone for a flavor ban, maybe it could have been mitigated or substantially weakened or possibly have some exemptions in there. Instead, now there's none. So, um Inaction comes at a cost, and I hope that the failures that people are seeing in, in, in these areas are a lesson for others that uh, you can't just sit idly by. Absolutely. I've been telling them all the time. I always think of um, Andy Dufresne and the Shawshank Redemption when, you know, he lobbies the legislature um, mm-hmm. to get the, you know, the library going. And they after six years, they finally give it to him. And he's like, well, now I'm going to write two letters. I tell them, these are your elected officials. They get paid by your tax dollars. Her, you know, her, short of harassing them, I mean, call them every single day, especially if this is your livelihood. Show them that it's your livelihood. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it's not that intimidating and it's not that hard. 
It doesn't require a degree in, in, in public policy. It doesn't require nope. you to be a politician at all. It is not that hard. No, and it's actually, they, I always tell them too, and that's what helped me when I've had to deal with lawmakers is I know more about this than they do. I just need to educate them. They've got pre, you know, they've got opinions that are massively wrong now just because of the media storm. So just be, you know, be pleasant and friendly and, you know, and just explain it to them. Um, you know, I mean, and also when you're, if you're a shop owner, I always tell them too, Throw them numbers, you know. What is your average, you know, what's um, average month in sales? What is that, you know, what is that also, you know, for employee salaries, you know? How many employees do you have? What what does this equate to, like, sales tax revenue? What does it ex- equate to an excise tax revenue if you have that in place as well? Right. Show, show yourself to be the legit business that you are because otherwise they're going to see you as this shady, weird vape store that potentially sells to minors and – could be an eyesore or a problem. Yep. Just, uh, dress nicely, go in, be friendly, don't lose your cool, explain things to them. And you, you'll be surprised how many legislators are generally very friendly back. They might disagree with you. They might not agree with, with taking your position, but they will be much better informed on the decision that they make which makes it much easier to hold them accountable after making such decisions because they have no way of simply saying, well, yeah, this was such a complicated subject matter. I, I didn't know enough about it. Yes. Yeah. Now all of them will be like, don't give them that chance. To leave. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Any last words for the listeners Aaron, and where can we find more information? Uh, more information. Uh, well, I'm still working on my uh, policy.com website, which still has this nice little um, placeholder <laughs> image, and uh, that's about it. Uh, blame the current media storm for not having enough time being at home and hammering <laughs> out my publication website. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, not much info there. Uh, follow me on Facebook. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Okay, I can. I will make sure that's in the um, in the description. Well, thanks for coming on again. <laughs> Thank um, you. You're probably my most frequent listener. Um, our, our, our edit that, guys. Thanks for coming on again, Stefan. Um, you know, you're probably my most frequent <laughs> sure, guest. Um, listeners, thanks for turn, uh, tuning in to another episode of Voices of Vapors. For more podcasts, including more of this uh, this series, please visit heartland.org or search for the Heartland Daily Podcast in iTunes for more information on electronic cigarettes and vaping devices. And just tobacco harm reduction in general, please visit our alcohol and tobacco page at heartland.org. Hey, listeners of the Heartland Daily Podcast. Over the last year, we've ramped up our efforts to fight socialism and want to celebrate our success with you at our 35th anniversary benefit dinner on October 4th at the Cotillion in Palatine, Illinois. The one and only Glenn Beck is headlining our special night, so visit heartland.org today to reserve your table and your tickets. And if you are a big fan of Beck, you're going to want to get the VIP tickets for an exclusive reception with him. So go to heartland.org today for more information and tickets, and we'll see you on October 4th.